0: This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the Covenant Network. How many times a day do we talk about the difficulties we encounter as part of life's daily irritations? Truth is that somewhere along the line, a comment will invariably be made that someone else may be worse off than we are. When I'm the one complaining, I usually find that a rather annoying statement, and I doubt if I'm really alone with that thought. A psychologist friend once told me that it was a pretty empty phrase because we have difficulty visualizing a specific person and what they're going through. Well, that may be true, but today I want to tell you the story about a little girl, a very little girl on a far-off continent that may just be an example, someone who was really worse off than me, or we, whatever. But the story is true, and while we are ones who may complain a lot, perhaps we ought to think about, what's the phrase? Oh, yes, how the other half lives. Now, our story actually starts somewhere around the year 1869 on another continent in an area known as the Sudan. Back in our country, the effect of the Civil War was winding down, but the melody was continuing on over there. No emancipation proclamation forbidding slavery in the Sudan, and everyday life there was a battle just for survival, and the perpetrators of that slavery holocaust were still plying their trade. In that year of 1869, a little girl was born. Even today, we don't know what her name was, or at least what her parents called her. We do know that she was one of eight children and lived a life of simplicity in an African tribe in the jungle not too far from the city of Darfur, which was just about in the middle of the country between Egypt and Zaire, and just east of Chad. By African tribal standards, the family was fairly well off owning a few head of cattle and some land that they paid others to assist them in tilling. Their lives were simple, happy, and in a way strange to us, rather carefree and unstructured as they lived their days in their little villages. Our little girl, the subject of our story today, is without a name. We don't know what her family called her, but we do know her first few years were happy simply playing with her sisters and brothers and other children of the village, at least until that day. The mother had left to meet the father when he was working in the village, and the children were playing near their hut, and then their fun was interrupted by screaming. Slave traders had entered the village. Even though the United States was no longer a market for slavery, other parts of the world would pay high prices for other humans, and Africa was a prime supplier. Our little girl managed to hide behind her hut as the traders grabbed and carried off her screaming older sister, never, never to be heard from again. Our little girl was about nine years old when the slave traders paid another visit to her village. This time she was not so lucky. She was lured unsuspectingly away when one of the men pressed a large, scary knife to her side and ordered her not to make a sound and follow him. She and others who had been captured were led barefooted through the jungle, walking the entire day. And by day's end, the little nine-year-old's feet were torn and bleeding from the stones, the brambles and the bushes, and then forced on through the night until they reached their destination, where she was, in reality, imprisoned in a filthy, tiny room for possibly as long as a month, until the traders had enough victims to make their trip to the marketplace worthwhile. But our little girl's horrors were just beginning. Perhaps a month later, she was sold to a passing trader and forced to march with other children, men and women, to the market where they would be sold. Beginning to get the idea of how other things could be worse? Oh, they will be much worse, and there's nothing worse than man's inhumanity to man. Well, on the way to the market, the healthier men and women were chained together in pairs and as they made their way through the fields and the jungles, but the children were only chained at night. You see, they weren't fast enough to run away unless given the right opportunity. And that opportunity came when their captor carelessly gave our little girl the chance to escape. So she and another child slipped out an unlocked gate and sought sanctuary in the depths of the jungle. For a day and a night they ran until they were too tired to try to run any longer when they met a man who said he would help them. His help was selling them to another slave trader, taking more humans to the market. Somewhere in the midst of all these troubles, the slave trader referred to the little girl as Bakita, which was an Arabic expression meaning lucky one. Lucky one? Well, lucky or not, the name stuck. So Bakita joined with the others on the way to the market. The cruelty she witnessed was beyond belief. The prospective slaves were treated worse than the animals of the field, as though they were less than human and devoid of any feelings whatsoever. After several weeks of merciless treatment, the group reached their destination, where many would be sold and others sent to more distant markets. Bakita was sold to an Arab chief. Even small children could be used for a myriad of lesser tasks, relieving older slaves for more difficult assignments. I suppose you could say that her life was easier than on the run, or what she endured with the slave traders on their journey through the jungles. Easier until she did something that angered the Arab chief's son, who beat her so viciously, that it took her a month to recover. When she was sufficiently able to get around again, she and another young girl became the slave of the Arab's daughter. Their responsibilities were to provide anything that the daughter wanted. They would have no time to themselves and would be required to spend every waking moment tending to the wishes of their mistress and if they did anything to irritate her or not, carrying out to the letter what she wanted done, the girls would be beaten without mercy. And if that were not bad enough, one day the Arab chief was particularly angry, not at the girls, but at something else, and to vent his own frustration. He had the girls beaten with whips, until they were barely able to move, bathed in their own blood as they lay on the floor. So severe was the beating that it took the two young girls almost two months to recover. Makes you wonder, doesn't it, about the validity of the name Bakita, lucky one? This was real life to real people, not a movie script. Not a fictional story, but what one child, not yet in her teen years, endured with no protection from the authorities or anyone else for that matter. And when it seemed like nothing could get worse, well, the worst always seems to happen. How can one slave be told from the next? The answer was simple. They would be marked, not with name tags or badges that we might use today, but with tattoos tattoos on faces and torsos and various parts of the body as means of identification which often resulted in disfigurement to make them less attractive to other buyers and ensure their permanency as their own personal property the means by which these markings were made were also less than human knives or razors were used The victims were held down while patterns were cut into their flesh on different parts of their bodies, and then salt and flour were poured into the open wounds to make the scars more permanently visible. Makita was not exempt from this form of torture, even though she was still a child. While her face was spared, more than 100 cuts with the razor formed patterns all over her body. She remained a slave in the same location for several years as she matured from a young child to a blossoming young woman who was still owned by someone else. While it was a fairly common place for the slave children to be abused in many ways, Paquita was somehow spared from any atrocity against her physical virtue, even though she was blossoming into a beautiful young woman as the property of a Turkish general, she had to accompany him as he planned to return to his native country. But something happened along the way. The caravan stopped at a hotel in a large city on the way to the coast. It was at the hotel that the general was visited by the Italian consul, who was a friend of his. Well, the following morning, Baquita was told that she was to report to the council's maid and assist her. He had purchased her, and now she was his property. She spent two years working with the council, and he was kind and considerate, a radical change of her years of enslavement with cruel and unusual treatment from her owner and his family. And as time passed, the council became attracted to Baquita's beauty and personality, but he respected her virtue as she spent about two years in his service before he was recalled to Italy. Italy seemed to Bikita a magical place, far distant from the continent of Africa, and Bikita hoped that she might go also. Well, as providence would provide, Baquita's dream would become a reality, and she would go. And route, the council met a close friend by the name of Michele, and the group, including Baquita, would board the ship for the journey to Genoa, where they were met by Mrs. Michele, who was fascinated by this beautiful black woman who had accompanied them so much. She liked them so much that she encouraged her husband to have her help with the care of the household. Plus, Mrs. McKelly was pregnant, and she would need someone to assist her after the birth of the baby. Well, to please this important family, the council gave them Bakita. Well, Bakita was now treated with respect and assisted Mrs. Michielli with the new baby, and they became as close friends. Three years later, the family was to return to the Sudan again on assignment, and they planned on taking Bakita with them, which they did. The Micheleis decided to make Sudan their permanent home, But there was a slight problem. They owned a home and property in Italy that needed to be sold and other matters of finance that needed to be completed, so it was necessary for Mrs. Michele and the child and Paquita to return to Italy for as long as necessary to complete the transactions before they would return to the Sudan. Being a prosperous family, it took Mrs. Michielli almost two years to complete all the necessary sales and subsequent details. But a problem developed. The Michielli's daughter needed an education, and Mrs. Michielli wanted her to have that education in Italy, but didn't want the daughter separated from someone familiar. Well, the family made arrangements for their daughter, who was now about five years old, to attend a boarding school run by the Canossian sisters in Venice. As they wished, Baquita would accompany the child, and the sisters agreed to take Bakita. The five-year-old was already baptized, and the sisters would take Baquita as a pupil in a special preparatory program for those who had not been baptized. Bekita, now about 21 years old, was thrilled. Her previous knowledge of God was sparse, and as a child she had felt that there was some type of supreme being that had made order out of this world, and she, she yearned to know him better. In her native village there was a semblance of some type of religious ceremony to honor some great spirit, and she had always had this yearning to learn more about this God. Well, while the Michielis were not particularly religious people, the man who served as administrator of their affairs, Mr. Ciccini, was and had given Bikina a crucifix. She would later recount, When he handed it to me, I noticed that he kissed it with great devotion. He explained that Jesus Christ was the Son of God and that he died for us. When I looked at the crucifix, I experienced a feeling that I could not explain. But maybe there's a lesson for us there, too. What kind of example do we set for others? Well, we may never know how we act and what the things that we do and how they may affect someone else. Well... Now, this was Bakita's formal introduction to the Almighty, and she was under the tutelage of a sister Maria from who took great pains in introducing Bakita to God and this Catholic faith. Bakita was, of course, a good student and hung on the good sister's every word. In later years, Bakita would say, Whenever I think of the love she lavished on me, I feel moved to tears, even now. And for the first time in her life, she had met and was living Christianity. The sisters were thorough in teaching and explaining the faith to this young woman, who had always yearned to know God, and she was mesmerized by what she was learning. It was as though a great void in her life was being filled. Probably for the first time in her entire life, Bakita was radiantly happy, but a problem arose. All the financial dealings of the Michielis were in place and the family would be reunited in the Sudan and that would include Bakita and she was expected as a slave to obey. Having found him, Bakita was not prepared to leave God. Her greatest fear was that she would not be able to honor him as she had been with the sisters, and the first for the first time in her life she refused an order. Slaves do not refuse orders, and after a number of months, she still had not complied with the Michielli's orders. Now again, they were nice people; they had treated her well with respect and kindness, and yet Bikida could not leave this god of hers with whom she felt so close. Mrs. Michele returned, pleading with Bakita to return with her to the Sudan, and finally, in desperation, she appealed to the Italian courts to force Bakita to return, but she forgot one thing. Slavery was outlawed in Italy. As Martin Luther King would proclaim so many years later, she was free at last. And within a very short time following her emancipation, Bakita was baptized and confirmed and given the names Josephine, Margaret, and Bakita. She remained with the sisters four additional years where she spent her time in prayer and study as well as helping the sisters with their activities of daily living. Mr. Cecchini, the man who had given her the crucifix years before, even offered to take her into his home as part of his family. But she graciously declined, saying that she wanted to continue living with the sisters. While the offer was kind and generous, and though Bakita recognized his thoughtful generosity, she would explain, "'I could hear more and more clearly,' the gentle voice of the Lord urging me to consecrate my life to him. She would look around the convent and watch the sisters in their daily service to God while filled with her own great love and devotion and harbored in the dark recesses of her mind a lingering question. Could a black woman from Africa become a member of this beautiful religious order? One could only imagine the difficulty in asking this thought as a direct question to the superior general who replied quite simply why not? Explaining that the foundress of their order had a missionary spirit, so after five years with the sisters, Bakita's dream was to become a reality as she became a postulant on december seventh, in eighteen ninety three. As one can imagine, there was the question, perhaps very logical, and that was, why she took this step? Her answer was simple and straightforward. Through the inspiration of the Lord, I really do not know. He did everything. She would add, when when people hear my story, they kept saying, poor thing well, I am not a poor thing. I belong to the master. I am living in his house. It is those who are not wholly the Lord's who are poor things. When Bekita was given her novice's habit, she kept her baptismal name and was called Sister Josephine or Sister Bekita. As it's been written, On December 8th, Sister Josephine took her religious vows in the mother house in Verona, ironically, where the foundress of the order had lived and died. Her love for God was manifested in her every action, and she marveled at the goodness of God for choosing her as one of his own, and more than once expressed the comment that if she knelt for the rest of her life, she would not be able to thank God enough. She was described by a priest who knew her that Sister Burkina kept steadily on the way to Christian perfection. She remained in Venice for six years doing the simple household chores that had been needed, and no job was so minor that it did not require the best that she had to offer. This was not always easy because she often had to move slower than some of the others as past reminders of the physical tortures she had endured as a slave. In the early 1900s she was transferred to a small town in the north of Italy where the sisters were engaged in teaching the faith, running an orphanage, operating a boarding school, and and many other charitable activities where her first assignment was as a cook. She would never slacken in her responsibilities, always offering everything she did as a gift to God." Unlike many other servants of God, she didn't experience gifts like prophecies, ecstasies, visions. She was content to consider herself as a loving and faithful servant of the Master. While well, later World War I was to break out, and most of the sisters re- were relocated, but Sister Josephine and several others stayed to provide care at the convent, which had been converted into a military hospital. It was written that Sister Baquita radiated something of the supernatural. In 1935, in her mid-60s, her religious order asked Sister Baquita to go on a speaking tour of Italy, telling the story of her life. Well, she disliked the limelight and sought the anonymity of serving God, but obeyed her superiors and embarked on the tour. The story of her life was spellbinding to the audiences and she would conclude her talk with the comment, It is your good fortune to be born in a Catholic country. I have come to it late. Be grateful to God and Our Lady. Be good. Love the Lord. Pray for the unhappy souls who do not know Him and what a grace it is to know God. Maybe that's a message for us today also, or do we take that gift for granted? Well, she was transferred to Milan, and for two years, until 1938, was the doorkeeper to the sisters' missionary novitiate in in Milan. Many of the young girls became reluctant, uh, and Sister Bakhita would always say to them, How many thousands of Africans would accept the faith if only there were missionaries to tell them that God loves them and Jesus Christ died for them? Well, that made so many of them reconsider. Then World War II broke out, and she was sent back to the previous convent in the mountains. Her town was pretty much spared by the bombs, and most of the inhabitants of that village attributed their safety to the powerful prayers of the little black sister. And during that terrible war, there was a magnificent anniversary as Sister Bakita celebrated 50 golden years as a religious. With bouts of poor health and suffering, she spent more and more time in the chapel talking praying with her spouse. She experienced long and painful years of sickness with acceptance and a smile. And during her last days of suffering, she would repeat many times, please loosen the chains, they are very heavy. And at the end, it was probably Mary Most Holy who freed her from her pain on the 8th of February in 1947. Bakita's last words, with a loving smile, were, Our Lady, Our Lady, and surely it was Our Lady who escorted the little black sister directly to the throne of God, and her intercessions for us began from on high. A young sister, Mother Angela Marie, was diagnosed in 1939 with a severe case of arthritic synovitis that was accompanied by the loss of the use of her leg, and over the next eight years, all types of treatments were tried without success. It worsened dramatically, and on October the 12th of 1947, after doctors had recommended the removal of part of her leg, a fellow sister. Mother Rachel offered a novena for the intercession of Sister Bikina to save the sister's leg. The two prayed for nine days the sister the two sisters, and at the completion of the novena during the night before the scheduled operation, Mother Angela Marie heard a voice saying, "Get up and walk." The following day, the doctors found the leg completely cured and the little sister walked without support. Calls for the canonization of Sister Josephine Bakita began almost immediately after her death. So great and many were the requests and cures that her cause was formally introduced in 1959, only 12 years after her death. She was beatified on May 15, 1992, and was canonized a saint, along with José Marie Esquiva, the founder of Opus Dei, on October 1, 2000, by Pope John Paul II. There is a prayer to obtain graces from St. Bequita. O oh God, Father of mercy, you have given us St. Josephine Bequita as a universal sister, an evangelical model of humble faith and ardent charity, Grant also to us the will to believe and to love in the spirit of the gospel and listen favorably to the prayers of those who ask for her intercession through Christ our Lord. Amen. Let us all remember Sister Josephine Bakita, a beautiful flower in the Garden of God. This is Tom Shrewsbury with Reflections for the covenant network.